Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing BandBiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. Welcome to this special interview episode of the Band Biographies podcast. On this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had a few months back with documentary and filmmaker Aaron Pendergast. Aaron is currently in post-production on a documentary about The Blasting Room, the legendary recording studio started by members of the band's Descendants and All in the mid-90s. If you're a fan of US punk from the 80s through to today, which I am, you'll likely be a fan of at least one, if not many of the bands who have recorded albums at The Blasting Room. And you'll likely own albums that were recorded, mixed or mastered there. Essentially, the Blasting Room documentary will be to punk rock what the Sound City documentary was to the Foo Fighters. Aaron was great to talk to and imparted some brilliant advice for anyone looking to make independent films and documentaries, as well as being very generous with his time and a great raconteur. Unfortunately, there was a technical issue with distortion on Aaron's end of the Zoom call that I just couldn't edit around. We noticed it early on in the call and Aaron sent me files that he recorded on his end as well, but the issue was still there in his files. I've done what I can to lessen the effect and edit out as much of it as possible, but it's obviously still there. I hope you're able to listen around it. Now I hope to have Aaron on again in the future to talk about the reception of the film when it's released towards the end of the year in September or October. You can find out more about the film at BlastingRoomFilm.com or on Instagram at BlastingRoomFilm. Technical issues aside, I really hope you enjoy the conversation and I'm sure you'll get something out of it, especially if you're into US punk rock bands or independent filmmaking. An additional shout out goes to my friend Zach Eastman for setting this up. He was working on the Blasting Room film with Aaron. And he also has film-based podcasts called Real Nerds, The Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, and Surrounded by A-Holes, which I heartily recommend that you go and listen to if you're into film. But without further ado, I give you my interview with Aaron Pendergast. So Aaron Pendergast, director of the Blasting Room documentary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Exciting to be here. Whereabouts in the world do we find you today? I am in uh, the Denver area in Colorado. Mm. And uh, just about just on the cusp of a move as well, I, uh, I understand. That is correct. Yeah, we actually close on selling our condo tomorrow. And then uh, 
we rent it back for two months while our new house is being completed. So in which case I really value and appreciate your time today. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into the, the documentary itself, I'm just going to ask a couple of kind of quick fire ish getting to know you type questions so that I and the listeners can get to know you at the same time. Great. So first off, this is not your first rodeo in, uh, in documentary and short filmmaking before. I think I've seen you've got a couple of other credits on IMDb, if I'm looking at the right Aaron Pendergast, of course. Is it Floating Horses and the Buffalo King? Yes, those are the other two uh, feature films that I've worked on. Mm. And talk us through some of the projects that you've done. I've done pretty much exclusively documentary work in the field. And uh, I mean, did some you know reality television and like narrative stuff when I was in school and that. But uh, in, in film school was when I got into the documentary thing and I just kind of stuck with it made a short doc, people really liked it, so I thought I was doing something right. But I've also tried to diversify the work that I've done. So my first short film was about a wounded veteran. And um, then, of course, after I made that, a bunch of other, you know, veterans organizations and former soldiers and stuff were coming up to me and saying, oh, I know this guy, it's a great story, this would be a great story. That would... And I didn't want to be like the military doc guy, because again, like I'm making a punk rock documentary, I'm not exactly pro-industrial military complex, but you know, this is a good friend of mine. So that's why I wanted to tell the story. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, I need to not do that at all. So every, uh, I feel like every project has like a similarity to the previous one, but it's like a little bit different narrative, right? So like right after that one about my friend, I did, he had two prosthetic legs after his injury. And then we did a short documentary about a dog with prosthetics. And then right. we did a short documentary about a wolf sanctuary. So it was like the canine connection, but like a new, you know, so everyone's just kind of like built off of an aspect of the previous one, but try to be a little different. The two feature films I did, uh, Buffalo King, uh, Floating Horses, were both uh, like historical biographies on figures in South Dakota. Mm. And that's because I was partnering with a guy named Justin Kaler, who's from South Dakota. So he was kind of the director producer, um, head of those projects. And I just kind of came on to help produce, edit, be part of the crew, you know, just again, as in, with, especially with independent documentaries, you kind of do everything. You yeah. small crew and everybody does a little bit of all of it. So it's, uh, you know, it's nice because you learn a lot of things, but it's also like you're not, you get in that film school mentality of having like a whole crew because everybody needs credit for class, yeah. right? But then you get out of it and it's like you can barely scrape together four people to make a movie after that. So, <laughs> so. but it, it's fun. I like doing it. So that's, mm. uh, this one was kind of, I've worked with Justin on a few he's gotten less available just like he's he has a family and they, they just have their second kid that might have been two years ago now. covid makes everything weird i don't know what <laughs> how much time has passed certainly um, does yeah but he's just too you know with family obligations and work and doesn't have the, the time that he had when we were doing those features before mm. um, so he started up a short film but it was just kind of a you know i think he's still working on it he probably started it before we started blasting it and he's still working on it just because time is so hard to come by this is one of those things especially in the independent kind of arena as well it's all about budget isn't it and availability of people and how everyone can fit into the schedule exactly yeah and that's i mean especially yeah being a parent with two kids like not as much disposable income as, yeah. as he had before to, to put movies together <laughs> and, um, and then funding them is so hard I mean, just getting you need to do something where you actually need money and it is it's a slog and that's one thing i'll get justin he had a knack for finding money and making these things happen i don't know how he did it i wish i could do that but well this is it i mean one of the questions that i wanted to ask a little bit later but as we're on that kind of area now what is it that a producer actually does for those who don't know i mean i think people have got a a relatively clear idea of what a director does a cameraman a lighting guy but what's the producer's role that's a really good question. There's, and it's funny because there's a lot, right? You have like your producers and your executive producers and your line producers, and associate producers, right? So there's a lot of different names for it. I think in like the Hollywood space, a producer is kind of the person who helps get the money to make the movie and then kind of determines how it gets spent. Um, at least that's kind of my like pedestrian understanding of it because I've never actually worked in the industry in that capacity. Um, but for, so for me as a producer, what I do in this indie film space is that I'm finding the money, I'm scheduling, planning everything, the execution, just like defining like this is when we need to kind of halt production and start post production. And this is how much we have budget wise allocated to spend on 
production related expenses and here's how much is post. And so when that money's gone, it's gone. So even if we don't have everything we wanted to shoot, we're just going to have to look at that because we need it for, we need the funds for licensing or whatever else. So, I mean, then that's the other thing that's outside of scheduling is like contacting record labels to get rights for music or, you know, coordinating crew and travel schedules. And, and those are some things where probably like, you know, on a bigger production, like a line producer might be the one dealing with like the budget and things. But for, you know, again, in the indie space, it's just kind of like producer is the umbrella for it. I will say executive producer is a vanity credit and buy that so that one is the one i know for sure so when you see hollywood star name exec producer they really haven't done very much at all <laughs> exactly yeah. they, they basically put up the money to get the movie made sure <laughs> but uh yeah like you say on kind of on independent films and documentaries and stuff you're kind of doing a bit of everything it's all hands to the deck isn't it at all times i guess pretty much yeah you you really have to just i mean we like floating horses if you watch that movie, and I'm not saying this to brag at all, it's just, it's to me, it's insane to think that if you watch that movie, that crew was two people wow. for that entire production, at least the production side. Post, we had a, an audio engineer do the final mix and a composer with the music, but I mean, that was it. Right? So thinking that that's all we had and put that together, when I look at it, I'm like, man, was, I, don't, I don't know how we did it, but here we are. And thankfully with Blasting Room, we've had a few more people to help um, Mm -hmm. So typically we, we have at least three crew members instead of two. Um, sometimes it's two. Uh, <laughs> I was actually shooting something two days ago and it was, well, no, actually we had two. I went there as solo, but I had a friend in town mm -hmm. who does production that she helped me out. Okay. A mutual friend of ours, Zach Eastman, has helped you out on a couple of bits on the Blasting Room doc as well. He has, yeah. He's been on set a few times and he's doing some, some producing work like uh, for us, like he's helping me get all the releases we forgot to get signed signed by all the bands and things that were in the movie um, we try to have them on hand but sometimes it's like like uh my co-producer kevin he had printed out some for some interviews he was doing while i was out of town and like printed them out had them ready to go and then forgot to bring so you know again it it's just so it's all it's all kind of time management and there isn't a lot of spare time to manage all these different jobs isn't there yeah so you kind of alluded a little bit earlier that you were kind of coming, especially in this documentary, but I suppose uh, from you personally, you were saying kind of coming from a kind of punk rock background. I mean, is that the kind of music that you're into? Yes, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's what was so exciting about this movie for me is like so many of these bands that are recorded at the Blast Room. I'd like to say it's every single one, but it's definitely not. But a, a large percentage of fans that have recorded the Blasting Room, I love and have been listening to for years. Mm. So getting to do a movie where I get to like talk to all of these musicians is pretty like like teenager me would not believe that I was actually doing this because I was just obsessed with like, the Atari's and Apple and Trio, like, Hot Water Music, and all these bands, and then actually getting to sit down and interview them and having to not be a fanboy and just yeah. getting to work with these bands and. You know, I try to be professional when I interview. Like, I think it's important, right? They deal with fans all the time, and you're you're here to work to make this movie. So I try not to like fanboy out when I meet these guys and just stick to script, be professional, get what we need done, get out of the way. Like, I, I, they get enough of that throughout the day, and they're, they're doing us a favor already. So it's yeah, enough. it's something that I've had on here. I've had one or two people from bands that I've really loved from my teenage years right up to now, and. um yeah, always very conscious of taking up their time and not wasting it as well, you know, trying to kind of get an interesting conversation out of it. Maybe not one that they've talked about to death in the past as well, trying mm -hmm. to find things that are interesting to them too. But did you ever play in bands when you were younger? Were you a musician or a singer or anything like that? I, um, so I, in like middle school, high school, I played in the, in the like, you know, concert band or whatever, I played saxophone. I wanted to sing in a band, but I didn't have the like balls to do it. You know, like I was like too much of an introvert to like actually get up and do it. So I never did, but I was mm. So this is kind of like I get to live vicariously through the bands I love now. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it, it's one of those things. I think singers, I've done lead vocals, but I prefer playing an instrument as well as singing. I just feel like there's something about having a physical object to hide behind. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, like it's a barrier kind of, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Do you remember a time when you either heard a song or you watched a film and you thought, that's what I'd like to have a career in. I'd like to do that as a job. Yeah, uh, honestly, I, oh, what I want to say it was, and it, it's like, it's sad that this was it, but, it, but for whatever reason, it stuck with me. I remember sitting in like, my geography class in middle school, like, just not just thinking about the one with Brendan Fraser that came out in the 80s. Like, okay, I went yeah. and saw that, and it was just such a, like, over-the-top, fun, ridiculous thing that I was like, man, I want to, like, I want to do that. Like, I want to make those kind of things, like, those kind mm. of stories, yeah. And I never really like thought about it before that of you know, what did I want to do when I got older, but that really clicked. But at that age too, I didn't know like what was involved in making a movie, right? When you're like twelve, like all you all you can think about is, you know, there's like actors and directors and that's it, right? Yeah. Um, I don't remember exactly how But yeah, it's you you know, then as you get older you realize you the roles and things. So it, that was kind of I think where it first hit, but I never took it seriously until high school. And my buddy Chris was, he worked for like the TV station at the high school and he was editing music video for this AMV competition we had, which is like an anime music video thing for this anime convention and he had to submit it. And I was watching him edit and like just the timing he was doing with the music to the shots and everything. I was like, this is cool. I want to do that. Um, so that's what got me into editing and realizing more, you know, roles in movies other than directors and actors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that, then yeah, I was like, hey, can you teach me how to do this? So then he was kind of showing me how to edit. And then after that, I was like, well, this I'm going to be an editor now. I wanted to edit action movies, going back to the mummy thing. But it just kind of, you know, fell into like the opposite, into documentary, right? <laughs> yeah. And what is it about documentary that attracts you more to that style than feature films, for example? Um, it really is just kind of a, uh, that's how things happen. Um, so I, <laughs> when I went to school, um, Initially, because Colorado, like at the time, I didn't think had any film schools. We sort of did, but I ended up at a, a community college in Greeley, which is north northern Colorado, kind of near the city of the last region. And um, they had a television production program. So part of that was they were pretty much priming you to intern at and work for the news stations in Colorado. So I learned a lot about lighting, interviewing, framing for putting someone on camera for an interview. So then when I got to film school many years later, and my buddy Jesse got hurt and I was telling everyone that his story and he was a very inspiring individual. Like, you should do a movie about this. This is great. I was trying to figure out like a narrative approach to like fictionalize his experience in a way. And then mm. I was like, this is dumb. You don't have to do interviews, like just do a documentary. So we did a doc about him because again, I had that TV background and that interview background. So it's like, okay, this kind of, I can do this and probably do a better job. But if I try to do a narrative, line, it's still pretty green, you know? Mm. And um, it was received so well that it kind of just became the thing that it was like, well, I guess I'm the documentary guy now. <laughs> so I started kind of planning the next one. And then I met Justin in reality television. And he was getting this Buffalo King thing going. and wanted somebody who'd done the documentary before to help him out because he'd never done one, at least to completion. He shot something, but it never went anywhere. Hmm. So it just, yeah, and I just kind of kept doing it. And because they kept being well received, I was like, I guess I'm, if I'm good at it, I might as well stick to it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I won't say that I'm good at, it, but they seem to be doing okay. So they they get recognition. That's what <laughs> yeah. matters. It's uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, just before we get onto the kind of main thing of, of meeting various bands and being fans of various bands, I always like to try and skewer anyone's punk rock credibility or indie credibility by asking what their first single or album was that you bought with your own money. So I man, I was thinking about this. Because it's so hard to remember. And again, going back to the moving thing, all of my CDs are boxed up. So I'm like, I can't even like look at my collection and be like, which one of those did I get first? But I want to say, and I'm not saying this to be cool. I'm saying this because I genuinely think it was. I think it was Dookie by Greenhead. Well, yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> and I, That's the only not reason, uncool. Yeah. The only reason I think that was... Um, I remember when it came, it came out in 94, so I was either in the tail end of third grade or beginning of fourth grade. And I remember going to my friend Tim Tormey's house, and he had the CD, and we were listening to it. And I specifically remember the song Pulling Teeth. And mm-hmm. I was like, I really like this. This is really cool. But I was still in like, you know, grade school, so I could not, I didn't have any money of my own at that point. But I feel like once I had like an allowance and I was allowed to like walk to the mall without my parents, I went to the, the record store there and bought it. So I could hear that song. 
<laughs> and um, growing up, were kind of record stores, were they important to you as a young kid kind of finding his way? Or did you have older siblings or anything like that who had kind of where you could, they filter down their music taste sometimes, you know? I think it was, um, it was a combination of, like, so my dad was a musician who played drums in bands okay. when he was younger. And so he had a, a big music collection where I, you know, I, I listened to a lot of his. So like, to be fair, like the stuff I was into, I was into a lot of other things before I heard that Green Day record just because what I had access to, you know, so it was like the Beatles and Steely Dan, Dire Straits, uh, Led Zeppelin, like whatever my dad had laying around, basically, right. I would listen to. Um, and then, yeah, the, I mean, we had a, the like mall in town was maybe like 10 minute walk from my house. So we would like a lot of times friends would come over and we just walk through the mall and go mm-hmm. hang out in the record store or you know go hang out at the the video game store whatever you know like the like two or three places we go in the mall were right yeah and we had a big record store it was like i think it was like should have been two different stores that were like combined into one because there were like stairs to get between the two parts of it right so i mean it was like a it was a big place and then they had those like kiosks set up where you put on the headphones and the button to like listen to the different albums and stuff. yeah um, yeah, I mean, we just, we spent so much time in there just like listening to stuff and browsing, you know, stuff we couldn't buy, but just for something to do. Um, so yeah, I think it was kind of like that. And then also just my dad being a musician and being passionate about music kind of like fostered that. Mm. Uh, as well. Yeah, it seems like you've got a good base there with your father's music collection. I mean, that's a pretty good level to start on is kind of Led Zeppelin, Steely Dan, The Beatles. You can't go. You can't go too far wrong when that's your base. Did you kind of rebel against that? I think lots of people go through a rebellious phase, but did right. you? I don't. I don't think so. I like. I definitely. I liked a lot of that stuff, and I continued to listen to it, even though I was getting into the punk rock thing. Mm-hmm. I know my dad didn't like the punk rock thing, so that's part of why I was like almost like more leaning into it because it yeah, was yeah. that rebellious. Like, well, I do like your stuff, but. There's this other cool stuff too. This so. is mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah cool. And um, when you uh, when you're getting a little bit older in in high school and what have you, um, when when did you start going to gigs? My first show, sadly, um, I shouldn't say sadly. It took a while for me to start going to live music. That's that's why it's sad because it's like I wish I would have gotten this stuff sooner. But uh, my very first concert was 2002, uh, the Pop Disaster Tour with Jimmy World Three Day. That's a that's a show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. But yeah, it was like at, at that point. I mean, I love that that was my first concert, but man, I was been missing out for so many years. I should have been doing this sooner. <laughs> so you weren't doing kind of basement shows or anything like that. Was that happening in Denver at that point? I think so. I grew up in Fort Collins, so it's about an hour north of Denver, and we had a little venue called the Aggie that used to be a movie theater that they turned into a, a venue. Um, so I think they were happening, but I just wasn't tapped into that scene right mm-hmm. like for you know it was just for whatever reason we were kind of very much on the like you know mainstream bandwidth going to kind of like the, the like known venues and this is pre-internet too right so it's kind of hard to find out when shows were happening where they were if you didn't like know somebody who knew the venue or, or the event that was going on so yeah um as i've gotten older i found i i hate going to big stadium shows and like <laughs> like i need smaller venues yeah um you know, we've got, I, and I don't even know what head counts, but for me, if it's like bigger than like the Ogden or the Gothic here in Colorado, like I don't right. want to go. Those are like the biggest places I'll go. Yeah. And they probably hold you know, people or something. And even that's like, I would prefer something smaller. Yeah, it's... yeah. I think I'm I'm similar. Like most of the bands that I want to go and see, I'm lucky that they go and play the Brixton Academy up in London. And that's about as big as I really like as well. And that's probably a couple of thousand. But um, yeah, any bigger than that. And I just think there's no connection. And especially these days with the crash barriers being so far away from the stage, you just can't get close. Well, I feel like you have a a higher concentration in those smaller venues of people Mm. who really want to be there and you can feed off that energy. When you're in those big stadiums, it's like once you get back a certain amount, like nobody's singing nobody's like they're all just they're kind of there because like oh yeah i know that one song right yeah. but in those smaller venues it feels like almost everyone is singing along to every word like mm. you're there because you, you love that thing you know so it, yeah. it's it's just uh i don't know it's a more communal like you said like the energy is just better mm. you feel like you're part of, of something 
Mm. And what was the what was the last gig you went to see? Oh gosh, that's a that's a tricky one. So the the last proper live show I went to was the Blaster Room 25th anniversary. Right. I've technically seen two other bands live since then, but it was we did a live stream for Teenage Bottle Rocket and a live stream for Red City Radio. So we it was like the crew and like a couple like the staff at the venue and like a few friends and that was it so i mean it was like it was a live show but not really a live show and i was also working so i couldn't really enjoy it yeah but yeah those were the last ones that i've been to i am going to uh jawbreaker the descendants and face to face on april 7th so that'll be my first proper live show excellent i was supposed to have been going to see the dropkick murphys and the interrupters last month but they cancelled Oh no! And they haven't rescheduled yet, which is annoying. Except that they're both playing Slam Dunk Festival over here in the summer, and you're like, oh. <laughs> annoying. Hopefully, they'll add a date for the to make up for the, the fingers one. crossed. Although they're saying that the interrupters aren't going to be the support acts next time round, which is a bummer. Because uh, yeah, that's too bad. I love that band. Yeah, they're a great band. Mm. So, which is your biggest love? Is it film or music? What would you say? It's honestly probably music because that's really like, for me, that's where everything starts, right? Like it's always something like even with the, the blasting room, obviously it's, you know, it's about the music, but I'll like hear a song and go, oh shit, this is, this is going to be this part of the movie. Like just because of the song has inspired that idea, you know? And that's for me, I mean, even like growing up, I was big into video games too, but I would never listen to the video game audio. I would always have my own music playing and just mm-hmm. playing the game. So then it was like years later, people talk about video game soundtracks. And like, oh, I guess they do have music. I just never listened to. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I kind of always go back to that of like, music is such a big part of my life that really a lot of my movie ideas are inspired by just hearing a song and hearing. like that makes me visualize something i could do in a movie and I'm like okay now how do i apply this to an idea i have for you right mm. so i i do think it's like probably my biggest source of joy and inspiration as far as like the content that i consume mm. and have you ever thought then about going into music video production perhaps so that was initially kind of when i was doing those music videos with my, my friend that got me into editing i had thought about doing the music video thing i just don't really know how you get into that from like, a, you know, at least in a sustainable, like I can do this as a career as opposed to just helping out like a local band and doing it for sure. you know, a little bit of money or for free, maybe. I will say I did love putting together that Red Sea Radio Live thing it was a really, really fun time. So that's something. And that was kind of like a music video mm. type setting. So um, I think I could do it if it, you know, became something that was more manageable. But I know like growing up, I was always kind of critical of these videos because I was like, this doesn't make any sense for what this song is. Like, a lot of the times they're just like, what does it seem supposed to be? But as I've gotten older, I realize they're trying to you know, be like, artistic or something. Mm. Yeah, and no, so, I know what you mean. There's sometimes you watch a video and you think this has got nothing to do with what I feel. I think that's the thing with music, isn't it? It's all so it's so much more subjective than any other art form and when someone puts images to it you're like well that doesn't vibe with how i feel about this song like yeah exactly yeah and i think that's that's it right it's like my my interpretation of it is just off enough that i don't understand what they're trying to do and i suppose as well perhaps the music video isn't such a major part of a band's marketing campaign anymore because are people watching videos now in the age of streaming i don't know that's hard to say. I mean, I, you know, you see a lot of like lyric videos for songs because they're easy to make. But I mean, is, yeah, is anybody doing that? Or are they just on Spotify getting suggestions or just listening to stations on there calling it yeah. good? You know, I don't like I'm, I'm like the weird one out that all of my friends send me Spotify links. So check out this. And I'm like, I, I don't have Spotify. I can't, <laughs> I can't check that out. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't do Spotify either. If I'm honest with you, I just, um, I don't know. I've got an old school kind of, I want the album. Like I want to listen to the whole thing from start to back. Cause exactly. Yeah. Having been in bands as well, I know the thought process that goes into creating them and it's like, it should be a journey in, in a way, right. or you should be, you know, it's create, it's curated. So uh, why not listen to it that way? I guess, but exactly. Well, it's like, <laughs> not to, I mean, yeah, not it's like to a... sound too old. 
no, no. I but I know exactly what you mean because it is to me. Yeah, it's like there's something about you know they they wrote that as a cohesive thing, right? It's not meant to be taken in pieces. So mm. it's like you want to experience that. Now, once I've like listened to something enough and I'm familiar with it, then I'll go ahead and throw it into the shuffle playlist and let things pop up as they come. But um, but yeah, that initially like when I get a new record, it's like I want to just listen to it all the way through many many times. <laughs> you know, happy that I'm like, okay, I get it. I can move on or, you know, go back to just mixing things up. But yeah, but yeah, I can't, the, the Spotify thing, I just, it's not, I'm like, I feel like I'm just throwing money away because I don't buy enough new music in a year to make it, you know, worth, like I'd spend yeah. more on Spotify than I do buying new music. So it's like, I'll just keep buying new music. Yeah, I'm with you there. So what was it that made you want to make a documentary about the blasting? Was it your idea in the first place? Was it pitched to you by someone else? It was, it was my idea and kind of, um, I was trying to, uh, like we were talking about earlier with budget, right? It's always tricky getting the funds to do things. And so I was trying to come up with something that was local, like in Colorado, some a scene that I was a part of, so I had some knowledge and some, some basis to come from to not be like an outsider coming in. And then also again, just from a cost standpoint, if it was local, it'd be a lot easier to shoot, right? I wouldn't have to fly crew places. We could go like day trips, get stuff shot. And uh for whatever reason, like I've I've been aware of the blast room since like two thousand or two thousand one or something as a place that existed, but it never clicked as a potential subject for a film until one night my, my wife was traveling for work so i was like home alone drinking beer watching sound city and you know it like ended and i was like i didn't like the end of that movie uh just because mm-hmm. he just like brings a bunch of famous people over to make a record and i was like well like you lost me like i was it was my level until here and now oh, this isn't hey pantheon listeners christian swain here you caught me just finishing up some editing on getting real with john and beth I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order 
plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. It's kind of showing off, I feel like, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. So I was like, I, I love this, but I want something to really down to earth. And the classroom kind of clicked in my brain. That's the idea. That's what you have to do. So yeah, that, that's kind of where it came from. It's just this like need to make my own feature film, but do something that like, even if money were an obstacle, we could realistically move it forward. And I figured with the studio, it's like, well, the band comes to town to make a record, catch them when they're in town, making a record. The staff's up there, so we can talk to them whenever. It's kind of, you know, if we got to travel a little bit, we can, but just, yeah, something that, that was more financially realistic to try to tackle. Yeah, because I think one of the touchstones for me, I was like, well, this is the sound city of the punk rock world, isn't it? Can you explain a little bit about why the Blasting Room is such an important recording studio? Like what makes it interesting enough to have a documentary made about it? I think it's really the, it's like the DIY nature of how it started and how it kind of continues to run and that it was really like, you know, basically three punk kids with no money like we're able to create what's ultimately kind of a state-of-the-art recording studio in a small town in Colorado and like every punk band that started in the, the 90s or early 2000s has had something touched by the last right like if they haven't recorded there the mastering was done or something right but, but everybody's mm. had something touched by the blasting room if they've been in a band in the punk scene it just ever i mean part of the draw was that it was the guys from the descendants at all that started the studio i think but just i mean looking at how they started it it's like it's such a um, you know and they made something out of nothing and they saw this mm. potential and they like you know you don't think of punks as being business savvy but they were like hey instead of like throwing away this record this advance from the label let's build something permanent out of it and it, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, it's inspiring. And it's also, you know, coming from a place of where I think a lot of punk rockers come from, but not having a lot of resources, not having a lot of mm. money at their disposal or, or whatever it is, and creating something really special with what little they had. And I, you know, it's, to me, it's just a really uh, inspiring place. And then it's also kind of a parallel for us making this movie is we're also independents and don't have any backing or real money and it's it's a very diy film as well so it all kind of lessons in a way yeah absolutely was it bill stevenson that set it up he, he was one of the original guys uh yes bill carl and stefan from the descendants and all and then uh jason livermore came in pretty early and just kind of slept on the couch and learned from those guys how to do engineering and stuff and it was set up on the back of a uh, record company advance was it i didn't realize that yeah so when um after the descendants kind of split and all became a thing they had a record deal with interscope so the advance they got from that deal they said hey let's let's get this space and buy a console and make our own studio because they right. normally they would use that for recording time but they figured if we make our own space then we could just make our own records stefan and bill had been kind of like picking things up and, and working with the engineers and learning how to make records when they had done other records. So they kind of knew what they were doing. So they were like, well, if we have the gear, we can record ourselves, you know, mix and master ourselves. And then we don't have to worry about not having money to do that anymore. Mm. But there was enough of like a following and an ethos behind the descendants and all that all these other bands immediately started calling them up. Okay, will you record us? Can we come, can we come to your studio and get recorded? So mm. it just kind of turned into like they didn't set out to do it, but that's what it ended up becoming. Mm. I mean, just mentioning a couple of those bands, uh, I mean, just a, a, a brief list. You you look at them and it's, uh, yeah, obviously all and the Descendants, but you've also got the Ataris, Lagwagon, MXPX, Less Than Jake, Rise Against, Anti-Flag, The Casualties, Propagandi, No Effects, The Lemonheads, 
me first and the gimme gimme's puddle of mud puddle of mud no news to her name uh the gaslight anthem nerf herd a teenage bottle rocket street dogs joey cape the bouncing souls alkaline trio big d and the kids table i mean they're just a few and they are a lot of those are, are massive names in in certainly in my record collection <laughs> and it's you know, like you say almost every band in that particular scene has gone through there who out of all of those bands how many kind of subjects in the documentary have you managed to track down you were saying that you were recording there and whoever was in you would try and get on on camera but did you have big names that you wanted and and did you get them we did we, we kind of went in with a list of like um, we wanted to balance it right we wanted to get some of the like name recognition the rise against the ataris those kind of bands that people even outside of punk rock would be familiar with right because if you're making a movie you want people to watch it right so we wanted to expand beyond just the, the punk community but then we also wanted to grab some of the like, smaller names and other people who are connected to the studio but maybe aren't in a band but were there in the early days or helped like the groundwork have helped build the place up so it was trying to kind of balance those things out and then we had that list of we'd like to get these people and then you know COVID happened and then just kept happening and so a lot of those like propaganda was one we were going to talk to chris hanna but like with the us to canada travel's been so weird we just haven't been able to coordinate it and now it's like we don't really have a budget to it's it's just hard so not to say we won't get them but it's you know a lot of people we were hoping to get we couldn't get um, but we've done over 40 interviews for the film wow we're basically I want to say we're done, but not quite. We have that Jawbreaker show that I mentioned. That mm -hmm. weekend, we're going to be knocking out the last of the interviews we have. So there's okay. a few people in town that we need to get for that show that we're just going to sit down with then. And then a couple people locally, we just happen to be able to coordinate that we're just that we're going to do like two, three days and just do interviews all day and get everybody else mm -hmm. knocked out. I don't like that we're still shooting interviews just because I really want to just be post all the time. I've been doing post-production, but like, just focusing on the edit, not worrying about additional content. Um, but these yeah. are kind of essential people, so we've got to just deal with it. So we'll probably have close to 50 interviews by the time we're done. Oh, wow. Okay. This is the thing with COVID, isn't it? It's kind of thrown everything out. When, when did you start filming? We started in October of 2019. Uh, we right. did the uh, brewing for the 25th anniversary beer at Odell Brewing in Fort Collins. Okay. And uh, so we did some B-roll because the, the studio staff were there to like test the, or they weren't testing the beer yet. They were like pouring in the hops or they were doing some part of the brewing process right. with the brewer. Um, so we did some B-roll of that and then shot the 20th anniversary show. And then so that was, you know, October, November, 2019. And then we all know what happened March, 2020. So yeah, everything just kind of stopped. Uh, the good news before everything stopped at least was with the show, we were able to like interview Milo and some of the studio staff we got, Rise Against was in the studio uh, that December and January, February to work on Nowhere Generations. So we were able to interview the guys from Rise Against. And uh, so we were able to pick up a few things before things shut down. Um, but I was actually mm. just yesterday looking at our production schedule and like all the shoot dates we had. And there's like an eight month pause where we just like we shot something and then we didn't shoot anything for all eight months. That's mad. Were there any who declined to be interviewed? So I know that some punk rockers can be a bit prickly and some some like a little bit of elusiveness still. Not outright. We've had a few people who've been like difficult to schedule or have kind of just like said, like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. And then like don't respond after that to anything. It's like you're like, right, yeah, and, yeah. And you I don't know, right? It's is it a uh, they just don't want to be on camera, which I totally understand. And if they don't mm -hmm. have to, that's cool. Is it like a COVID thing they're worried about? They don't want to say it, but they're like, really still not comfortable being with people i mean that was like yeah. chris rowe and the Ataris. he's had COVID a couple of times he thinks and so he was like i don't want to get it again so i don't want to be in a space mm. with people not wearing a mask but i know for an interview i'm gonna have to not wear a mask. Um, we did actually get him finally two days ago i was in arizona with uh, chris rowe and bob hope at flying blanket in mesa and um got both of those guys in the interview Chris outside so he could not wear a mask, but we kept ours on outside just so that he was, you know, as comfortable as he could be in the situation. Bob mm -hmm. even was a little more, uh, less COVID weary than Chris. We were able to do his interview inside in his studio and we just stayed masked. We lost the mask, but, um, yeah, yeah, but no, I mean, to, I've kind of gone on a tangent here, but to answer your question, I, not really, most people have been cool about it. It's just been like, 
either a scheduling thing or just a like email is not the best way to get in touch. So like we text them or we message them on Instagram. And then it's like right away yeah. response, right? But it's like if you email, like nothing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's also just like communication channels, what works for people. I know for me, like if you message me on Instagram, I'm going to forget it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to, but it just always happens. If I have an email, I'll, I'm better with emails. So. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Some people have, uh, I, I mean, even in life, some people reply quicker to a whatsapp than they do a text and i'm like what it's the same thing right (laughs) people just have their preferred methods but what you bring up about the masks and everything i mean it's um it's an interesting point people have got their own ways of dealing with various covid anxieties and what have you and uh yeah it's interesting because i think there's a lot of people who wanted to get back to shows for example but there's still a lot of anxiety in the air about it. So, you know, no, I think those uh, those kind of anxieties are completely justified. But yeah, it must, uh, I mean, has that been one of the big, I, I mean, obviously COVID as a whole has been one of the biggest challenges, but I suppose the scheduling, is that the biggest challenge of making a documentary like this or are there other more technical challenges or behind the scenes challenges? It's, it's one of the biggest ones. I think the, for this, this specifically in music documentary, the two biggest challenges with schedules, like getting people right. Cause like COVID was kind of nice because nobody was touring. So people were staying put, but it was also hard because, you know, if you couldn't travel or people were like, well, I would be okay if you weren't getting on a plane to get here in the first place, then I would be okay to sit down. There. So the, the scheduling, even with COVID being a thing and people not touring, scheduling was tricky. And then the other part is licensing music for a music doc. Mm. It's very complicated, very difficult. Labels do not advertise licensing costs for music. You kind of have to no. fill out a form, send it in, and then see what happens. I, my hope, my optimistic, foolish hope is that they look at your budget the reason they don't advertise is they, they try to help you out with whatever your budget is for the for the music of the movie and work with you on a price as opposed to just having a list price and turning people away right away. Because ultimately what's going to happen is if we can't afford it, we just won't include it. And then they don't make it. Mm. And it's like, well, so you guys can make some money or no money. It's up to you. You know, so hopefully people will be a little more flexible. The good news with this is we have a lot of artists on smaller labels or artists who own their music now. So mm. we don't have to go through the label thing and we can work out like the deal I try to work out initially is if we can get festival distribution rights because we don't make any money off of festivals. Right. If we can get that cleared for little to no cost, then if we get the distribution deal, we'll renegotiate terms for licensing music with distribution. Okay. That way we can put it out in the world as we intended it, but then we're not spending a ton of money up front and then we never get distribution and then it's like, well, we spent you know, $8,000 licensing music and we can't, it doesn't mean anything. We can't even, you know, <laughs> realistically sell it to anybody. So. Yeah. Cause I suppose with bands like no effects, for example, they're on their own record label. So it would be easier, I suppose, to deal with them if you wanted to get like a no effects song on there or one of their other label mates, then it would be a Sony or an Interscope or someone like that. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's where the, uh, that's where the cost comes in. And again, we've done, we've licensed um, video, like like television appearances and things and other movies that we've done. And those, you know, so you're, you're also dealing with like the Sony, some of the bigger labels that are owned by some of the TV and movie studios. And they will usually have like a festival only deal, again, because you're not monetizing, right? Festivals, you pay to be in the festival and then you don't get any money right. from the festival. So it's not like we're making money off of their content, but we want to make sure we're okay. Mm. So they've been cool with it. So I'm kind of hoping with the music licensing, I've never really dealt with music licensing like this for a movie. So I'm hoping it's kind of the same. It'll be like, yeah, we'll license it to you a third of what we normally would just for that Mm. limited distribution option. Okay. And so how close are you to end of production and then eventually the release and, and going on to the festival circuit? So in, in my mind, we are I think, almost exactly two weeks from completion of production and moving strictly into post-production. And then my goal is to have a completed edit by September or October at the latest to make the South by Southwest deadline. Right. Because that's kind of the big one we're shooting for. Anytime you make a movie, this is for any of the indie filmmakers out there, shoot for a big festival, 
right? Like let somebody tell you no before you give up on festivals. I don't think you should do all of them, right? But like pick the one you think is going to, for us, it's like South by Southwest feels like the right place for this to premiere. That makes sense. Yeah, it's like I'm not going to do Sundance. That's a, that's a lost cause, but South by feels yeah. like the right one. If we can't get into that, then we'll, we'll bring it down. Mm. The other reason too for those is like festivals are weird with rules. Like South by, for example, if you're a feature film, you have to be a North American theater okay. or they won't show it. So if it's screened or shown anywhere before that, they would take it. And even wow. if you get into another festival that happens before South by and they've, they've accepted you and you screen it at that festival, they'll pull yours and put something else in. So like wow. it's, it's a very serious thing to, yeah. to not mess with that. So that's the other reason we're like, we'll try that, get the no, and then we'll work on some other places. So we just fair enough. <laughs> Wow, I didn't realize it was so cutthroat. But I suppose, you know, they've got to, if they want the exclusive or they want to say that they're the place where this was screened first, then exactly. they're going to want to know that. Right. Well, it, it helps bring in an audience, right? Bring in more people if it's like the premiere of that movie. Mm. Um, we've mm. had a buddy of mine who was in a movie that was premiered at South by Southwest and before the festival was over, Netflix had purchased exclusive rights to the film. So that's like for, oh, wow. for a filmmaker, like if you get into it, there's a very good chance you'll get picked up by a buyer at the festival because they go to those big ones, right? Some of the smaller ones, mm. like not to speak ill of it because I love the South Dakota Film Festival and we've screened both of our movies there. They're great people and they put on a great event, but there are no mm. buyers at South Dakota Film Festival for content. So you're not, you know, you sure. can screen there and it's fun and, and all that, but you're not going to get a distribution to go there. So it's like, the laurels are nice. It helps legitimize your production, but that's not what you want to shoot for as you're kind of like starting. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to get it picked up. So if someone were to see it at South by Southwest, then is that the way that you're kind of looking to get a further distribution deal through that? Or have you got other avenues in place to go down that route independently later on? We've got some other options. Um, I like the festival one just because usually if a buyer comes to you and wants the content, that's your best deal, right? That's when you're going to make the most money on your movie. If you approach a distributor, like, well, now anymore, Netflix has gotten big enough and Amazon and all those places. I can't go to them and say, hey, I have a movie they want to look at. I have to go through a third party, like known content, basically a middleman. Right. To that then they will vet it and then send it to Netflix or Amazon, whoever, to for further vetting for them to say, yeah, we'll take this one, right? So then you have to pay that middleman also to handle things. The upside is they have like the lawyers and they know the contracts and they can review everything and make sure you're not screwed. Whereas I would need to hire somebody to do that if we got a deal through one of the festival avenues. But I do have, thankfully, uh, been in contact with other people who've done music docs and punk rock docs and that sort of thing that have connections with some of those, you know, third party places. And a lot of those are actually better because they'll get you placements in multiple avenues so you'll go through them and they'll get you on netflix and on amazon and on some obscure screen streaming service in germany or something like you know they'll kind of get you like diversify you everywhere where you may have a market to maximize yeah. the revenue from it so we do have some other options but it, it's kind of one of those like it'd be kind of cool to, to premiere at south by and get a deal there yeah definitely and uh going back to the documentary itself what's been your personal highlight from it so far what's the major success that you've got from it so far question um i will say just from like a technical standpoint it's better than anything i've shot up until now which is cool like it's always nice to see that that gradual improvement in quality of your work mm -hmm. personally i think for me the biggest highlight is feeling like i'm kind of like in a way, part of the Blasting Room's extended family now, like just being able to kind of drop in the studio and everybody's like, oh, hey, man, how's it going? How's the movie coming? Like people, like you have that recognition, you know. Um, I've even run into some musicians and, dude, what's, how's, where's the movie at? How's that going? So it's like, it's, I'm starting to kind of be like part of that scene that I've always been kind of a fan of, but on the outside of. So I think that's kind of just the coolest thing for me is like being more a part of that space in, you know, whatever limited capacity it is. That's really cool. Have there been any surprises that you found out while doing the interviews for the documentary or doing the research into the documentary? Oh, that's a great question. And I feel like there are. I mean, I don't know if I call it a surprise, but my favorite thing about doing documentaries is when you find old stuff you didn't know existed. So like when we were, um, I was getting stuff scheduled with Chris and Bob, 
And uh, Bob texted me a few days before I got out there and he said, Hey, I was, I told our singer uh, from Pollen that uh, I was doing this and he was, I got a bunch of footage from when we were in the studio in 96. So, like, we have all of this footage in Pollen in oh, 1996 wow. of the Blasting Room. And it's the oldest footage we have for the movie because they opened in 94, 95. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I never would have thought because like kevin's been doing video for them for years but his stuff starts in probably like 2004 2005 so it goes back mm. but not back as far as the studio's been around we'd have a we've had a couple of bands reach out and send me like dv tapes of them at the studio and like it's all great i love that stuff it's so like you know just like grainy and, and like shitty looking and it has that for yeah of like the 90s early 2000s because like that's how cameras look then you know yeah so like finding that old footage and him having it is such a cool and i didn't know we would have that i could hope that we would but the fact that it exists is like so cool well i suppose it gives it that real time capsule diy feel as well isn't it like it's a it's a document from that time as well which lends even more credit and legitimacy to your project yeah exactly it also adds a layer of complexity right because we're shooting everything on like new cameras in 4k and then we're dealing with you know like four three like very low res footage and trying to integrate i was going to ask how your uh how it looks in context because obviously the 96 stuff is it even digital or had it been converted from tape to digital in the meantime it was it was definitely tape i think they they must have digitized it because he was going to give me copies while i was there he hadn't finished going through everything and he was like i don't want to give you anything it's like 96 like we might have said some stuff but it's like not cool like, I would cut that out, but I, I can understand why you want to review it first. So. It was a it was a different time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that must be awesome, though. It must be being like a fly on the wall. I love that kind of stuff. I mean, it's like um, the obvious example from recent times has been the Beatles get back. When I first started watching that, I don't know whether you've seen it. Have you? Not yet. No. When I first started watching it, I was like, oh, this is slow. It's like just a couple of guys sitting in a room talking and occasionally fiddling with a with a guitar or whatever. But the more it goes on, the more you're like, you see the genesis of these exceptional songs and like the amount of stuff they were just throwing out. Like you can see the genesis of all of their solo stuff as well. It's really, really interesting. And uh, yeah, I, I, I just think all that kind of fly on the wall stuff is just so fascinating to see how different bands work together and how the, how the kind of egos clash and all that kind of thing. I love that. Definitely. Well, it's interesting too to like see their process as like the engineers in the studio and how they've evolved over the years too, right? Because like when they started out, I'm sure they were still kind of figuring things out as far as recording music. Because you can even tell when you listen to the early things recorded at the Blaster Room versus the later stuff, it's gotten mm. better, right? And that's a combination of the gear and then also then just getting better with the mm. The three main guys, are they still hands-on involved in the day-to-day running of the Blasting Room today? Or have they kind of taken a more, you know, step-back approach to it now? So the shift, um, so it was Bill, Stefan, and Carl were kind of like the mm-hmm. co-owners. Uh, Carl stepped back, I forget when, um, but kind of early on, so it was Bill and Stefan. And then Stefan also kind of cut out. He's got his own studio in Tulsa. It's like a home studio. I don't know if he does actual recording stuff there. Or if he just kind of, mm-hmm. it's just kind of his space. But so Bill's still the owner. And then Jason Livermore is the co-owner. He's also kind of the mastering person at the studio. And so they, they co-own the space. Bill's kind of, from what I've seen, pretty hands-off anymore. Like he comes in for like the big stuff, like, or rise against it recording it or something um but otherwise mm. he's kind of backed off a little bit just because they have you know other engineers that are using space and bringing in local bands or you know, like uh andrew always works with bottle rocket so like, like mm. bill's worked on bottle rocket records too but usually andrew is the one doing most of the recording stuff yeah um jason's pretty much just mastering anymore um it's like all he does and um because he's, I mean, he's amazing at it, which is why that's what he does. But, but yeah, it seems like Bill's kind of taking a step back, uh, doing more with the Descendants, playing more live stuff, which I know he wanted to do that way. So it's, it's mm-hmm. definitely good. And actually, his son, Miles, is interested in music and recording. So he just started interning at the studio. Oh, wow. So, which I thought was great that they're making him intern. It's not just like, oh, you're Bill's kid. You <laughs> just get to work here. Like, they're 
running. Yeah, yeah. Well, that must stem from the DIY working class attitude. You don't just get given something; you got to work at it. Right. You got to clean the toilets like everybody else. And <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. So it's been a longer, more drawn out process than I'd imagine you originally envisaged back in the last part of 2019. Oh yeah. In that time, have you started to think about the next project that you're going to be involved with? Or has it just been about like getting this over the line because of the difficulties that have been posed uh, since 2020? I, um, I have to force myself to focus on getting this done because I do have a brain that cannot stay in one place for too long. And I think too, and I don't know if this is all documentarians, but I always have like a half dozen or more ideas in the back of my mind for the next thing. (laughs) And what's funny is they rarely actually become the next project. Usually it's something that I hadn't even considered doing is the next thing. And one of those half dozen things will just fall to the wayside and I'll never think about it again. And it'll be replaced by some other airbrained idea that I'll probably Because so many of the ideas I have are like these big things that we need like a lot of money. They're maybe not big in that they don't need like, you know, 30 person crew or anything, but it's like, it's not realistic for the resources. I think it's just part and parcel of the creative brain, isn't it? Like anyone who's got, you know, whether they're musical, whether they're filmmaking, whether it's writing, there's always something going on inside and whether or not it ever makes it to fruition, you know. Is anything presenting itself at the moment as the next project? I do. It's kind of, um, it's, it's hinging on if we actually make any money with the blasting room, right? Because really for me, like this is more of a hobby. Like it, it's kind of nice, right? Because I can like allow myself to call myself an artist because I'm not doing this to make money or to make a living. I do it because I enjoy it. So, but you know, money's all the thing. So if, if we make some revenue from blasting room, it's just going to get, apply to the next project that's how i'll I'll use it most likely Mm. and um i do have an idea uh it's actually going to be something not shot in the u.s um so i have to work with some my like build a network of filmmakers elsewhere i don't want to say too much about it yet because i i I never like giving away an idea until we're into it because i'm always afraid somebody's going to be like that's a great idea and i have lots of money let me go (laughs) shoot that but i will say it's in a different country but it's something that i found fascinating I learned about it a few years ago. This would make a really good movie. <laughs> so, but it will be a short film. I don't want to do another feature. I need something yeah. that I can turn around a little quicker. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. So, floating horses took like four years, and right. I went into this saying, "I am not going to spend four years on, on my movie. We're going to do this faster." <laughs> and then four years later. <laughs> At least I can blame COVID for this one, but yeah, yeah, it's not entirely down to yeah, it's, it's outside influences that have caused this. Exactly. <laughs> but I, I just I don't. It's uh, I mean I part of why I like editing is I love to see the finished product of something. Like I like to be able to to have this idea and see it all come together in the end and see what it is. So when you're spending this long on one thing, getting to that point, that's where I'm just like, it's so frustrating. Just how it turns out you know (laughs) i suppose right now it's kind of tantalizingly close as well isn't it (laughs) oh yeah no this is it's nice that we're kind of on the back end that i've been able to sit down especially during holidays this year because we kind of like had a lull with you know again with christmas and everything like people are busy you don't know about people in holidays so i had some time to really sit down and focus on the edit for a couple months um and that was a really like again gets me excited because you're seeing all this great stuff you have and you're digging through the footage and you're seeing these great moments where like you know Bill's explaining something to Dan from Out the Trail. Now right. it's part of why it sounds like this or whatever. Like those kind of things. Oh, this is gonna be so good when we get it in the context of it. But yeah, it's it's uh I'm excited to be kind of on the the back end of everything and getting mm. into that heavy post production work and trying to get this thing done and, and out in the world for people to see. Brilliant. Well, good luck with the final piece of filming that's coming up in the next couple of weeks and uh, also with getting it ready for South by Southwest by the end of the year. Fingers crossed for you. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's a high bar, but hopefully we can can get there. I really, really appreciate your time today to talk to me about the project, the Blasting Room documentary. Aaron Pendergast, thank you so much for coming on. I wish you all the best and uh, I will keep an eye out for the film. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. 
There you go. Wasn't Aaron a brilliant storyteller with bucket loads of information on punk rock and filmmaking? I'd like to thank him for his time, as well as attempting to help with the technical issues. I'd also like to thank again Zach Eastman, host of Real Nerds, the Ballyhoo Review podcast, and Surrounded by A-Holes, for setting this up in the first place and introducing us. I hope the film is received well at South by Southwest and is picked up by one of the big streaming providers or distributors. I can't wait to see it. Hopefully, once it's been released, I'll catch up with Aaron again and you can hear him slightly more clearly next time. In the meantime, check out the project at blastingroomfilm.com or on Instagram at blastingroomfilm and let him know I sent you. As ever, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and until next time... Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at bandbiogs, Instagram at bandbiographies, search on Facebook for bandbiographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time. <laughs>